everybody. Welcome to episode three of the Two Versus Two podcast. I am Grant Roberts. I'm your one of your hosts, uh, and my other host is Joe Caruso. Hi, Joe. This would be the first time that you haven't actually said what you do during your introduction, so I'll trump you on this one and say that, that I'm Joe. Hi, I am the co-host, and I am not in the gaming industry. I am instead a network engineer in the IT industry. Well, I was going to say it, but I feel like it's... I don't feel like it really conveys that much. If, if people are listening at this stage, you know, we don't we don't have an audience of thousands yet at this stage. Well, according to my wife, the last podcast we did was the first good one. So you might want to be prepared for people to jump on at any point. Not just better than the, the previous two, or not better than the previous two, but the only good one. Well, I won't put words in her mouth, but, you know, uh, it, That's not it might I have been implied. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, it's Grant and Joe, and, and we have guests. Ah. Uh, let's let's start on the couch next to me. This is Jason. Hi, Jason. Hi, yeah, I'm a game developer from uh, the crazily named Gryptonite Studios, which was previously Amazing, which is similar to the name Amazing Society, not to be confused by each other. Uh, all owned by a company named Foundation Nine, which is. Uh, schizophrenic in a lot of ways. I always loved the name Foundation Nine as like a parent company. It's always it's very future sounding. Like Foundation yeah. Nine is the company that sends people back through time. Until but the weird thing about it, do either of you know what the reference might be? Because I have no idea. No, I don't. I mean, I'll Google it while uh, <laughs> while people are introducing themselves. The weird thing is, you know, you introduce yourself as, "Hi, I'm a game developer from Gryptonite Studios." When in fact, you, there is really no Gryptonite Studios. It is a name on a building owned by Foundation 9. Uh, it's kind of like working for a company that is owned by EA. It's not... A, uh, Jesus, my phone is that crazy. It's my phone getting nine texts. I was honestly a little confused about that when I... Uh, the first day, <laughs> when I went to the website for Amaze, looking... Because, I don't know, I was out of touch with Amaze for some reason, and I went to the website looking for Amaze, and I saw Gryptonite, and I thought, I, I thought something went wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, there is no Amaze anymore. <laughs> yeah. It just disappeared. Like, all these corporate studios that slowly vanish from existence. Well, I'm not going to hold mind, I've been going through, like, the five or six different ways that I could spell Gryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to hold off on introducing Luke for too much longer, but I will say that... Well, we'll get back to that after this. This is Luke. He's on the other couch. Hi, Luke. Hi. Uh, I'm Luke Matthews. I work in the... kind of work in the gaming industry. I'm a tester, uh, and I'm just kind of an, an overall geek. Here to, here to represent the uh, the non-developer side of things, I guess. It's a blurry line, <laughs> like I said before. Um, hey, you you established early on that testers don't count. No, that's see, I don't want to say that. Graduates have real careers later. Um, oh. that, that you don't look down on them. <laughs> no, see, that's the don't count, huh? <laughs> no, see, Joe says that you may not have heard how I originally got my start. I started as a tester, and you know, climbed the ladder. I also started as a tester. I was going to say, I think a lot of people in the gaming industry started as a tester. Some of them, you know, it depends on the discipline. Um, in design, that, that happens frequently. Yeah, yeah so Grant has decided from his ivory tower that uh, <laughs> that if you are still a tester, that you don't count yet. No, I have decided that if you are an, if, if you are a tester that tests that you're not, if you're not an in-house tester, then that doesn't count. Like, if, if Jason was a tester for like Microsoft... Microsoft testing company? 
What's that? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, if he, if he was a, a tester for a, a publisher or something or for, you know, a distributor, then I wouldn't count that. But if he was an internal tester at Grip Tonight, then I would say that counts. It's kind of specifically like I, when I worked at Sony, I worked at Sony third-party online, which meant I never touched a Sony game. I only touched games that came through Sony certification, which is almost not even testing. It's more just well, see, confirming that the game works. That's a key. That's a key distinction too. Is there's a difference between a debug tester and a certification tester, sure. right? Which is I I'm on the the certification side of things. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And uh, being a debug tester is entirely different. You know, when you're a debug tester, you're sitting there playing a game for eight hours a day trying to break it. Yeah. Whereas you know, certification tester, you're you're on the game for a significantly shorter amount of time, basically just trying to tell a a publisher that their crap isn't allowed on the system that you're testing it for. We've well, here's, here's where I get to say that I actually had no idea that that distinction existed. Well, if you work in the in the uh, at Sony yeah. specifically, you wouldn't know either. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are uh, there there are many different, and I think one of the tester types that uh, that Luke did not mention. I think they're called SEDs, which is I think a software engineer developer or software kit. I don't remember what they're called, but they're essentially testers that also write code. And those are kind of the... Uh, Software test engineer is, is different from a tester. Yeah, exactly. Now, is, so, is, that, is that the product of an economic situation, or is that something that people think works? Or well, they after just a while, big enough staff? After a while, QA and the development uh, groups, they usually have conversations that last, you know, nights, months, weeks, whatever. And eventually, they, they almost start to meld on, on tasks because coders need to write new code and make the code that they have work better, while as some very bright QA members may just have that skill innately and be able to help debug code specifically line by line, which most people don't want to do anyway. Oh, so you're saying at some point in the development process, there is most of the testing is done and people need to focus on fixing shit, and so people who were testing transition into fixing. A little bit. Sometimes. I think that depends on where, like, partially it's a function of the size of the company yeah. that's developing the game, too, right? If you got a little tiny development studio, then a lot of their testing is going to be in-house by the people that are coding the game because that's all they can afford to do. Whereas when you get a larger company, like I'm sure EA has, you know, uh, in fact, I know that EA has a huge, uh, well, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe after this week they don't. Yeah. They, they, uh, had a huge uh, debug section that was that was specifically for testing that did nothing but test their games and report back to their devs. Right. Okay, so this is just big company, small company stuff that happens in every industry. The bigger you are, the more specialized you are. The smaller you are, the more you have to kind of move around and fill different roles and yeah. that sort of thing. Me personally, I started, when I was at Legend, we had a QA staff of two people. We had the QA manager and then there was me where I started out. At the next company I was at, Leaping Lizard, there were only six people at the company and there were no testers. Then at Gas Power, we had something like 10, including a you know senior QA, lead QA, and like QA director and stuff. So yeah, it's really a function of the, not just the size of the company, but whether or not the company can can hire different grades of testers. You know? Well, also some companies, um, like Perpetual Entertainment, which was my first development job, they really wanted their QA to be to aspire to do something different. So when they found out a QA guy wanted to do design, for example, they would sync them up with a designer and try to help the designer specifically, you know, advance whatever they're trying to advance. And a friend of mine actually uh, was amazing with the code. He just, you know, he wasn't recognized and he didn't know anything about the games industry. And they set him up with an engineer and they started testing a lot codes, uh, 
Lines of Code. Lines of Code together, and eventually he started writing stuff for it. Well, that, that again, I think that's just a basic business philosophy because uh, there are certainly companies in the IT industry where you can join as, you know, somebody in a call center and you can end up, you know, as a dispatch engineer, and then in a couple of years you can end up as a team lead managing a few other folks. So, uh, you know, that just seems like you're either a company that decides that they want to pursue the idea of developing internal talent or you're going to hire for your positions. Well, and the, the concept of certification testers is a separate, whole separate animal because it depend, that's dependent on the nature of your company. Like devs clearly are not, I mean, they might have some certification to test, testers depending on who they're developing for, but the like what, what I do, like the three major console developers, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo all have their certification departments that are kind of a different animal from debug testers altogether because they are specifically there as quality control for stuff that is being submitted for the console that it's going out on, which which clearly PC doesn't have, obviously. You know, Mac doesn't have. iPhone barely has. Uh, I don't know about I, that. I mean, Microsoft and, and Apple, I mean, sorry, they want to see their games. They want to see their games done right. So unless... Uh, 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 like I'd, argue that point. I'd argue <laughs> that point on the on the iPhone only because there is absolutely there is no number of people you could possibly throw at a number of submissions when they approve you know what was it there was about a month ago there was this big deal because they approved like fourteen hundred iPhone submissions in one day and it's like that that's there's no amount of people <laughs> you can throw at software that can actually effectively test that for bugs with any actual depth other than to say I started the app I was able to re receive a phone call and it didn't fuck up my phone call great this app passes in a similar way that little big planet did it I mean they're they're kind of uh, certifying their games based on on player feedback mm. people you know commenting that this game this level is uh, inappropriate or breaks my system they then take it down and do a further. I mean, I, I don't know personally that this. It seems like that's what they did, it, especially with the baby smacking app. I mean, that was just inappropriate in a lot of ways and hilarious, and obviously something that uh, went against their regulations. But it went through, and then somebody commented, and it went away. So what I'm taking away from this is Jason Warnke pro baby smacking, <laughs> right? I mean, well, if you've learned anything in the first ten minutes. Um, well, so I mean, I actually do think it's kind of useful for, you know, if, if the podcast has an audience of people who, you know, just want to hear what developers have to say about their industry. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of normal media that developers participate in has a promotional aspect and has, you know, a lot of media folks who already understand these kinds of things. You know, I have never experienced an outlet where I heard anything like, hey, there's a big difference between QA testing and, you know, certification testing. Well, even to some developers, that difference is not always apparent. I mean, their QA is, is kind of persona non grata in, in some cases, and testers are just testers no matter what they do. And that's just the way, that's one of the ways that this uh, industry you know, perpetuates that kind of stigma. There's just some faceless jackass that's griefing the developers. Yeah. Not any, like, <laughs> how yeah. dare you find that bug? <laughs> exactly. I, I should well, I should mention, though, that it's kind of funny being a designer sitting next to a QA guy because <laughs> most of the time it would be evil glares across yeah. the, the couches because 
QA guys are there to make devs make sure they did their work correctly. And when who wants that? I mean, people don't like getting called That's on their boring. bullshit. I mean, I don't like it when I have to be corrected by Grant for grammar, and that happens a lot. <laughs> But, uh, well, that's often, though. And that's where <laughs> that that's one of the reasons why I have that kind of insight on the difference between certification and QA is because I've done both. Right. Um, I moved from QA into certification, uh, which eh, I won't go into the details of why that's a humongous step up, but it's a humongous <laughs> step up. But I think that the, cert- the whole concept of a certification tester came about, you know, in a little bit of stupid video game history, came about because of the whole, you know, the Atari... Uh, you know, video game industry crash in the are, early are 80s. Gonna, so. Are you going to talk about those games? That No, I'm not okay. going to go into talking about those games. <laughs> I am, however, going to talk about there. there is a reason why in the early 80s you saw the Nintendo seal of quality oh, on yeah. games when they started coming out. That was because there was actually somebody at Nintendo plugging a game into a console, making sure that it didn't break shit or, you know, or that it was quality enough to actually sell and not, not in so much as uh, it's... It, Anymore, it's not so much that they're judging the quality of the gameplay, clearly, because there's a lot of shovelware for a lot of game uh, systems out there. The PS2 was a very you know, clear demonstrator of that. But, um, but, it, but even though it might be shovelware, it doesn't cause your system to crash. I really wish that that seal would come back, because when you bought a game back then... I mean, Nintendo would back it and say, this game like is fun. Thing. This was an actually a good game. You should buy it. Well, but morally, I mean, yeah, I mean, come on. That might have been, been the ideal that the, was that The was problem right around. now, though, is that um, doing that kind of guarantees people will ignore the shovelware, which might actually affect little well, studios that are... Business, right? Well, you're right. Yeah, it, affects, exactly. it affects the bottom line of the console manufacturer to some degree, right? You know, when the shovelware, regardless of how much it sells and how much money it makes the developer that or the publisher that publishes it, it it's to some degree makes the console manufacturer money regardless. Yeah, so, I think it's very interesting that you guys equate the Nintendo seal of quality to that sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, Nintendo saying that a game was good because from my perspective, uh, during that era, the way that Nintendo really endorsed a game was by giving it spreads in Nintendo Power. I mean, they had a they had a marketing arm that was heavily read, and if they decided to do you know a twenty page spread on Battletoads, people would buy it, even though they had no hope of completing that game. Yeah, but back then, my mom she would go into a store and kind of get this vague idea of what I wanted, and she'd look at a bunch of games and she'd think that oh, this game has the seal on it, and actually buy it. I mean, I don't know how many moms did that, but. It's just kind of one of those quality of a product things that you that you don't really have in the industry right now. Well, for some reason, I was smart enough to ask my mom for actual games instead of you know buy me Nintendo, please. <laughs> well, and I think maybe console manufacturers moved away from that concept. I mean, Nintendo Power still exists and it still does that to some degree, but. I would think that it would piss off developers that are developing for, say, the Wii or the PlayStation for the company who manufactures the console that they are developing a game for to tell the general public that their game is a piece of shit, right? Well, like, yeah. So to rev- be reviewing games that you're also, you know, manufacturing the console for. I had that problem. I worked for Wizards of the Coast for about four years, and for a while I, um, I was writing, for a very short period of time, I was re- writing a review article for RPG books on, on the Wizards of the Coast website, and after my fourth article, which was a review of a uh, Deadlands 
D20 RPG, which was terrible. Um, there were two reviews I read. One was for that. One was for a book called Rings of Power. Anyway, I won't go too much detail. But basically, I reviewed them terribly. I said this 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 book is horrible. It you know it here's all the problems with it, um, and it was very fast that the Wizards of the Coast management came down and said we got a call from at the time it was AEG saying you know we don't they they're pissed off at us for negatively reviewing sure. their book based on the D20 system, and I was not allowed to write that article anymore. Well, and that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, Watsy still, you know, there's a reason that the, the gamers refer to Watsy as the mothership when mm-hmm. they do articles because, you know, you, you are very aware of the fact that they might highlight the good things about a product, but you're never going to hear about the bad things that they're publishing. That they're publishing. And that's even to some degree what I encountered when I worked there. I wasn't really... I mean, I'm sure it's the same anywhere else. I'm, I wasn't really allowed to be negative about the products that Wizards of the Coast was making. When but that's I not weird, right? I mean, everybody yeah. expects that. I mean, when I was writing, they, they gave me very strict parameters when I wrote any kind of articles that were related to Magic or D&D. But when I, was, when I started reviewing other products that other companies were publishing based on the D20 system, then I was given kind of carte blanche to say whatever the hell I wanted, and I guess maybe I should have, you know, had a a slight sense of self-preservation there and actually uh, been a little bit more delicate in my first few articles, but uh, unfortunately they handed me a product that was such a humongous piece of crap that I felt like burning it after after being forced to read it cover to cover, um, (laughs) I, I just wanted to burn it in effigy, and they uh, they finally just told and, me I couldn't. And just to say, if there's anybody out there, God forbid, who is listening to this podcast and thinks they want to try pen and paper RPGs and comes away from this thinking Deadlands is a bad game, it is not a bad no, game. No, no, no. Deadlands is definitely not a bad game. It's just that that book. And, and actually, the Deadlands, just to be clear, the Deadlands book was not the one that I thought was that terrible. Deadlands wasn't good. The D20 Deadlands back in the OG, the beginnings of the OGL was not good, but the one that was terrible was was a book called Rings of Power that was probably one of the worst RPG books ever published. I'm cutting all this out. Good. Um, <laughs> so while you guys were, were talking and I kind of fell asleep for a minute, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I, I, I was interested to see, like, I always read, uh, like, when I see review scores that are advertised in magazines and on TV, it's like, official PlayStation magazine gives this game 9 out of 10. It's like, why would they ever give anything in the official PlayStation magazine? Why would they give scores less than nine out of ten ever? And so I was kind of curious about that. And I looked up on game rankings to see what their average review scores were for games, and I'm seeing you know eight out of ten, four out of ten, five out of ten. So really, I which is surprising to me. Like Fallout Three, Mothership Zeta, official Xbox Magazine UK gives it a five out of ten. Damn. Do you, okay. Do you think that maybe some to some degree that's something that? Um, they could easily base on uh, like manufacturing volume and and whether or not, to be honest, whether or not they honestly think the game's going to sell anyway. I don't know. I mean, I don't see what the I don't see how anybody wins by you know looking at it from a really cynical perspective. I don't see how anybody wins by them giving Tour de France two thousand nine three out of ten. Yeah, I'm I'm actually really surprised because my experience with you know website articles published by. Uh, companies that are involved in the making of games or in any way involved in the promotion of anything, uh, you pretty much, you know, you might say nothing 
about something that's bad. You just wouldn't write an article about it. Yeah. But you're going to say only good things about the products you're trying to promote. It was it was weird, you know. Wild Things was the second game that I worked on that was released to the public. It says Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah, sorry, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, for 360, Wii, and uh, PS3. And, you know, it, for what it was, it was actually a really great game aimed at the uh, 8 to 14 age group. And IGN tore us to shreds. It was just... I was appalled by some of the stuff they said. I mean, when you look at, at uh, other... Uh, other websites, uh, like kid websites. I mean, yeah, we're looking at a fifty-five point two five. <laughs> I mean, four point seven out of ten. Look, I've been there. Oh, it was. I mean, it was a harsh review. Uh, they, they didn't need to say some of the things that they said. <laughs> had, personally, I mean, I kind of just the game was definitely not a game that I would have bought had I not worked on it and played through had I not worked on it. But you know, as a kid, I loved the books and the art was beautiful. The music was great. Uh, there were obvious problems with it that you know somebody who would enjoy like uh, Borderlands or um, Call of Duty they probably wouldn't enjoy this game but it's not aimed at that and so it, it, uh, reviews in my opinion are a matter of opinion and it's kind of hard when a, you know IGN.com reviews your game poorly because you you don't want people to see that it's a bad game it's just that they don't feel that it's a good game well I, I mean I, I could do you one better when I was at Leaping Lizard I worked on a game called Bicycle Casino for the Xbox um, that got a 3.7 on IGN so suck <laughs> yeah, it. you would say that actually is shovelware right <laughs> it very much was it's you like let's, there's no scroll down a there's bit. no poker game on the Xbox let's get something out there so the rubes will buy it. A, a um, moment in time when poker was so popular that everybody was making a game. Period. And speaking from a poker, from a from a person who plays poker on a regular basis, um, that uh, that era in time for video games was it was a terrible time for me where I spent a lot of money on things that turned out to be crap. No, I never. I'm not going to make any comments about bike, bicycle casino. It was crap. It was terrible. But there. Like there, that happens a lot, though, right? There's a lot of, of course that pop up and people. Yeah, but are like, holy crap, we need to make a video game about this. The Lombardi game, <laughs> but I mean, no really poker enthusiast really. <laughs> I mean, is going to buy a console poker game. You what? It, we didn't hear the first part of that. You say nobody that likes. I said no poker enthusiast, no actual like you know person who's serious about playing poker would would ever buy one of those no, games minute, those don't... are games for people who aren't even going to notice how bad they are well sure. you're saying that because there's already a pre-existing market on the PC for I'm poker saying that games people for... who play poker Fair. seriously have no intention to play poker against some shitty AI okay. for no money now wait a minute there's a huge difference though you at the beginning of this you said poker enthusiast and then you then proceeded to shift into someone who's serious about playing poker and that is a there's a huge Gap there, like yeah, I guess poker, that's true. poker enthusiasts are the people that are buying these games. They are the people that are going to go out and be like, "Oh my god, the November 9, I'm going to go buy every World Series of Poker video game I can to hope that maybe I can play against Joe Cotta in a video game." By the way, Joe oh really? Because I thought the people who bought those games oh, really? were people who were like, "Oh hey, I kind of like poker. I'm kind of bored." No, it's the people that saw it on TV. See, I think poker would be way more popular in the gaming industry if we did what, what you guys talked about last week and added this crazy kind of RPG meta dating thing to it. <laughs> oh, God. I yeah. have no idea who would play that because, like, casual people wouldn't know what to think of it, and 
people who really cared about poker would be endlessly frustrated by anything that got in the way of their odds. Well, so, I mean, there's, there, there are examples of games like that all over the place. Like, there's a kind of a... I'm trying to remember what the name of the company is. I think it's Intelligent Systems, maybe, that did Golden Sun uh, originally for the DS, and they've done other stuff like that. They started making um, a Nintendo golf game that was like... Yeah, heavily RPG. The Mario Golf. Yeah. Oh, and that, and to be entirely honest, that game was awesome. It was. The golf was kind of incredibly good and not yeah. like super realistic like Tiger Woods. I find Woods. myself wanting to go find this game. Now. Oh, it's so good. Oh, my yeah. God. It's really good. And so, and so, like, I wonder, there are examples of that all over the place and not just in, you know, weird poker dating sims. I don't know. I mean, you could totally have this crazy kind of bluff system where you buy clothing and articles of... Uh, that would not only make your character look good, which people seem to like in a lot oh, yeah. of games, but add to maybe your bluffing ability or your ability to um, coerce people into, uh, you know, calling out your bluff. I mean, that kind of stuff. You could totally add a system to it. I'm going to start writing this down. We're writing a design doc. Uh, <laughs> um, God, I would hate this game so much. <laughs> I agree. I uh, think, yeah, it would, it would go beyond being it's a like poker the, game. It would be a, uh, a strategy game with a poker, you know, Well, I see, it's like the polar opposite of, of as, as you said, anybody who's serious about playing poker would want, like... Well, know, yeah, I just know I... Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, the video game geek side of me, even though I am serious about playing poker, is like, that might actually be kind of fun. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, remember I just wish they'd pick another game, because I know too much about poker to find that fun. Every time, somebody, every time somebody, like, rivered out on me because, like, they had a skill in it. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I remember they all these PS2, <laughs> these PS2 uh, poker games, which would just, they would feel so pointless to me, because You'd go in, you'd get $1,000, you'd bet, and you had no stake in that $1,000. So when you lost it, you're like, okay, yeah. I guess I will restart that's and get another $1,000. That's and what makes poker video games difficult is you you ended up in that um, like middle ground where you weren't really appealing to video game enthusiasts, and you weren't because video game enthusiasts weren't going to buy a poker game just because it's a poker game. You know, like you said, there are, there are no RPG elements. There aren't anything in there that's going to make somebody interested. And you aren't, you aren't appealing to poker players because there's no money involved. Yeah. Well, that's and what, you, you know, can't get a poker player invested in playing against AI when A, you know it's not real, and B, you know the money's not real. The, um, so, that racing game, I want to say it's Need for Speed. I don't think it is. Um, something underground. Yeah, Need for Speed Underground. underground. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, it was. I mean, they had this whole great money system where you'd raise people for money, you'd buy bigger, badder-ass cars, and you'd go along with it. If, if they had something like that in a poker game, I'm sure more people would be interested because you're increasing your look, you're getting, you know, higher-stake games, you're, you're doing little detail changes to your character as you're progressing, and you see that progression, and you're enjoying it. I'm the sure... Difference is, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, the difference is, is that with Need for Speed Underground, um the average 22-year-old that's still living in his mom's basement does not have enough money to go out and pay $40,000 on, like, uh, a tricked-out Mitsubishi and race it on the street and and potentially race it on the street. Whereas poker has this weird thing where any douchebag on the planet can deposit 50 bucks into full tilt and have the potential to grind a bankroll up into potentially millions of dollars. Yeah, and even I yes. know the name Chris Moneymaker. And exactly. That's, I mean, that's just... 
it makes me a little bit uh, sad for the people that were like heavily into poker before that. Yeah, because I feel like they're kind of like, what the hell is all this crap now? No, no, but, no, but even we then, love no. that. Even <laughs> no, no, yeah, absolutely, that's more people pay that we can take their money. That's excellent. But you see, then, then you're 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 even actually proving my point that there is a progression. Even for the real person, they put in fifty bucks. Eventually, there's a million dollars in their account. And if you make that into the game, if you actually make that a part of the game, as opposed to this really invisible, like I mean, honestly, you put fifty bucks in, you're you're playing in some, you know, on a, a card table or like mm-hmm. a. a a fold-out card table, and then eventually you're having millions, you're in the championships. I mean, that's a visual, artistic change that players could see and, and appreciate. Right, but but the difference is um, you've got this weird crossover where online poker is basically a video game already, except I can either go spend $50 on a video game that I'm going to play on my PlayStation 3 or my PC or my DS, and then spend... You know, multiple hundreds of hours grinding up a bankroll, grinding up a fake bankroll to potentially make millions of fake dollars in a fake set of tournaments, or I can spend $50, I can download the free Full Tilt Poker software, deposit $50, and potentially do that all for real. Well, ultimately, is there really that much of a difference between grinding out a fake fake bankroll in a poker game and grinding out your tier four gear in World of Warcraft. <laughs> well, yes, because because in a video game uh, that is designed for you to play and realize that dream, yeah. you're going to be given advantages which make it possible so that so that you feel good about yourself. And you know, uh, MMOs do that. They they sit there and say if you're reasonably competent and can stand there and hit the heal button often enough then you're going to get this pimped out gear and lots of people are going to achieve that but very very few people are going to deposit 50 bucks into you know a poker website and actually not just lose it well that being said also i think the key is the is the the separation from reality and all that right like um Regardless of whether the average person is actually going to grind up a bankroll on a poker website act in reality, they think they can. Um, I do not think that I can travel to the uh, 1400s fantasy <laughs> world and sure. eventually fight enough little monsters that I can grow, you know, grow more powerful and get more equipment and slay a dragon. Because your PC isn't powerful enough. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Um, I think it's pretty impressive that we've talked for a half hour now and we haven't even touched on our... Yeah, <laughs> impressive is one way to call it. That's I my mean, fault. Online, but no, it's not... <laughs> just, I, no, I, no, I, no, that's a good transition point, and you should just take it, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was almost a meta conversation about... Because you could really fit any game into that conversation and it theoretically could have worked. Yeah, I, it's true. So, yes, there is an agenda... I forwarded it to to our guests before this. Uh, I've received some feedback from some people that that knowing the agenda and knowing the content of the podcast uh, going in would would help for uh, would help for comprehension purposes. I suppose <laughs> I don't know what else you would call that. Um, so since we have uh, just go, sum sorry, it up Joe. for us, go ahead. I said just sum it up for us. What sum up what the agenda is? No, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell me every agenda. I no, this, it's not gonna. It's not gonna read well. Games, gonna, games. Is the yeah, we're sum talking up. about. Well, let's. We'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll and that being said, I'm actually interested in some of these agenda items. I agree, which is why I typed them out and why you know, yeah. Luke's going to get another beer. I'm not going to let him get away with just wordlessly going up. What are you doing? What are you pointing at? Okay. Does anybody else want to get them up? 
Uh, no, thank you. And we're losing Jason, too. This podcast is rapidly falling apart. Well, uh, I'll okay. be right back then. No. <laughs> Don't leave. <laughs> um, hey, I can sit here and talk. We, we Possibly can, to a fault. Yeah, we could start without Jason. Uh, Joe, have you been playing anything uh, new since last week? Since last week. The only new thing I have been playing is Torchlight. So did um, you did you buy it or did you just get the demo or what? I did I did buy it. Um, it, it did not take long to convince me at all. Uh, it is pretty much what I was told it is uh, by yourself as well as others, uh, and that is sort of if Blizzard were in the practice of making sequels to its games in a reasonable time frame, then it could be considered Diablo two point five more or less, and uh, and. I have been amazed at how well it reminds me of that game while simultaneously doing just enough to make me glad I'm not just playing that game again. Well, that's that's kind of how I felt when I was playing it. It felt like I was back playing Diablo, but I never got into Diablo as much as you did, so it kind of felt like somebody had made Diablo more casual and more fun and then released it with the same music. Um, <laughs> I really didn't think than that the original Diablo was in any way yeah. not casual friendly, by the way. I'm sorry, what did you say, Joe? I really didn't feel that Diablo 2 was in any way not casual friendly. Well, I just mean they, they just made things easier in the in, in Torchlight. Like, they, they removed the... Like, you didn't find the ability to socket items or, or do stuff like that until later on in Diablo 2. You never had the opportunity to send your pet back to town to sell items. You... You know, weren't really capable of enchanting until you found the Herodric cube. Right. So, like I'm saying, as a casual, sorry to interrupt that, but I wanted to chime in as a person who, at the time Diablo was out, a a relative, a ridiculously casual PC gamer. I I loved Diablo One. Was huge into Diablo One. I played that game. That was one of the. I did not play PC games, and that was one of the few PC games I I played through front to back like three or four times. Yeah. Um, Diablo Two came out, and I became totally disenchanted with Diablo. And I and that and I know I know right. Most of the people that were into hardcore Diablo, like Diablo Two, was Diablo with everything made better. For me, it was. All of the casual fun that I had with Diablo 1 was gone, and now I had all the same hack-and-slash mechanics, but with this ridiculous, like, overbearing RPG progression that I never wanted in my game. Wait, 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 wait. Um, just, just real quick, just to make sure. You enjoyed Diablo 1. Mm-hmm. But you didn't enjoy Diablo 2 because of the RPG elements. Because of the added RPG elements, absolutely true. The progression was something you, that could I you did. Elaborate a little bit. Uh, it. I don't. It's been a long. I mean, I get what because, he's saying. I mean, I'm also I, just kind of functionality-wise, and I don't mean to. I'm sorry, Blizzard. Please don't hate me. Don't cancel my accounts or anything like that. But Diablo One was Diablo Two, just with more stuff. And and the actual function of the game was you had the five base five six basic stats or whatever. You advanced them to put on better gear. And then you killed stuff better, and then you got more skills, and then you advanced. As soon that. as I as soon as I looked at the skill tree in Diablo two, and saw how complicated it could potentially get if I continued to advance my character, I decided that I didn't want to bother anymore. Because Diablo two was literally walk into a dungeon, click on something until it dies, look at the piece of equipment that it drops, and compare it to the piece of equipment you have on you. If it's better, equip it. 
move on, click on something else. Right? And, and, see, and that, is, that is an extremely casual form of gameplay. But it was so hardcore. It, it, it's okay, so there's this game... It bridge, it's on, a weird bridging this, of that gap. There's this game sitting on my desk right now, which if any listeners have heard of, I would love you to email me because this this game is called Shuttles. It was made in 1984. It's a board game. The actual function of the game is to move your pieces across the board. Now, the, the meta part of that is to make the board change as you play it. Um, and the function is simple. Very simple. Diablo is an extremely simple game. And everything that people love about it is it's simple. It, sorry, there's complexity in the simplicity. And it's amazing. So you have those basic stats, which you advance in a trillion different ways. And the simplicity is I put five points into uh, Ice Bolt, and now it does more damage. But now you know that in coordination with the ice bolts, you can get lightning. I mean, well, and I think it's the perspective of of someone like my. I don't play PC games. Like I haven't. The last PC game I played was Half Life Two, and even that I only played maybe a third of the way into the game. <laughs> um, so I'm just I'm not a PC gamer. I'm a I'm a hardcore hardcore. I'm a staunch console gamer, and back then. Um, PC gaming was like the reason I liked Diablo so much was because um, it was not just simple in um, execution, it was simple in aesthetic and it's the aesthetics that that for me pushed me away from the game as a, as a quote unquote casual PC gamer, right? I mean, it, they, we didn't have PopCap back then so like I didn't, I wasn't playing Peggle and you know, random puzzle games all the time. So I was playing Diablo, and it was just, it was simplistic for a casual gamer, and it was fun for me, who was a fantasy geek. But then, but I wasn't a huge RPG gamer either, so when Diablo 2 came out, and it it added all those, what I perceived, real real or not, I perceived because of the aesthetics as a, as layers of complexity that I didn't want in my in Diablo, I just didn't I just didn't like it anymore, you know? It's, it's well, really interesting that this... No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's really interesting that this conversation has gone from Torchlight, which, by the way, I'm really sad I missed out on the beginning of this conversation because I love Torchlight, but for um, a lot of different reasons, which we can talk about some other time, is we go from the conversation starting with Torchlight, ending with Diablo 1, and saying that Diablo 1 is the... the Casual, the more casual of the three that we've just talked about. Well, that, that being said, I've never played Torchlight, so I, I can't chime in on on that one. Everything well, that you loved about Diablo, I mean, I can certainly say that, that, that Torchlight does the same things that you didn't like about Diablo Two, which I love. It it does go through and say, here's some skill trees, and if you bother with it, you'll get some synergy off of it. And you know, if you if you choose to get into crafting and and using spells that are synergistic with your trees that, uh, you know, that will have a reward, mechanically. Yeah. Well, and I've also never been... I've never been the rule. Like, everyone that I've talked to about Diablo and the Diablo series has had basically the same opinions as you guys. Um, And when I... uh, you know, when I when I start voicing my opinion about Diablo the way that I just (laughs) did, I get the same reaction. I'm like, really? Really? Is that really? And I don't know. I give the same tone to the guy at work who is like, yeah, I don't like horror movies because they're cliché. (laughs) <laughs> That's what's good about horror. Movies. Exactly. I don't know. Um, 
Do we have an agenda that we're supposed to be talking about here? <laughs> I, I want to mean, is We are. We played Torchlight, and we're talking about Torchlight. So, so before you know, we further the conversation a little bit, is I, I want to say that a lot of the stuff on the agenda and a lot of the stuff that I would have loved to have talked about that was on last week's stuff is because I find ways of making games harder for myself. <laughs> and it's not that I'm sadistic and, you know, masochistic or whatever. It's just that... Um, when you find something that works and you exploit it to the point where it's no longer a um, viable strategy and it goes into a just an exploit, um, then it, the game no longer is fun. And uh, we could go into Arkham's Asylum now if you like, because that is. Well, I think we're still. I think we're still way up the agenda here on what is everyone playing. Hey, I will be <laughs> sure. I will be, okay, it here's their. You know, attention, all future podcast guests. I never want to hear the word agenda <laughs> The agenda does not exist. Okay. One thing I'd like to say about Torchlight before we leave it, you know, since since I'm the gamer side of things, is that um, it is my perception that it was developed by a fairly small studio, and. I would really, really like to encourage future developers to follow the model that they have used, which seems to be we're going to not worry about making our game cutting edge, but what we're going to do is is really throw ourselves into creating, you know, something with a certain style, uh, which is focused on being one thing, and... Uh, we're going to execute that beautifully, and we're just not going to worry about whether or not our game looks as good as Crisis, or whether or not our game is sophisticated from a review standpoint. Please don't hate me for this, but I hate to burst your bubble. That was actually made by the original Diablo creators, or some of them anyway. So, yeah, but it doesn't count because they're not part of a huge company anymore. I don't <laughs> but I mean, well, no, I mean, really, isn't that kind of the case that that? They're not part of a huge company. I'm not saying I want amateur developers who have no idea what the fuck they're doing to start <laughs> using this design philosophy. I'm saying that that I appreciate the fact that this game didn't try to be all things to all people and that it pulled off what it did incredibly well, and I only had to pay 20 bucks for it. I'm not entirely sure that an amateur developer who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing could pull off that philosophy or even understand it to be entirely honest, because having that philosophy of that kind of focus would require the experience of having attempted a game with a broader scope and failed, I, I would think. I or, think. Or at least succeeded in another game that that had a similar sort of focus, but I think the smaller developers that don't know what the fuck they're doing, the ones that fail are the ones that don't understand the concept of focus. Um, the sure. ones that do focus on what they do well are the ones that manage to make something like uh, maybe Cave Story, you know, or you know, some random, you know, the, the the smaller games that are good are made by the people who who don't try and do everything. Yeah, they know what they want to do. They set out to fill their little space that they've carved out for themselves, and they do it well. Mm-hmm. I think another good example of that lately is Trine. Which was also oh, a new. I played it yet? I really want to. So I have downloaded the demo. Did that actually come night. out? It wow. did. Well, it's been out forever on the PC. On PS3, um, it just came out. It came out on oh, the PS3. I think a few of it is, ago. I don't know, some some sort of console downloadable title. Yeah, so, and then they just put it on a. They just put a demo on PS3, which I downloaded last night, and I haven't had a chance to play. Yeah, it. I, I apologize. It. So, so last of the conversation back to to Torchlight, but. Uh, check out a game named Fate by Wild Tangent. Oh, I work with the. Uh, a guy who was heavily involved. Jay was was heavily involved. Oh in that wow! Project. It's it the 
the thing I don't about like that game is it's exactly <laughs> Torchlight without fishing. It didn't, it, but it, I mean, I don't know what it's missing. The Torchlight's not, but I loved Torchlight from what I played it, and Fate did nothing for me. Fate did not have the visual representation, the artistic style that that uh, Torchlight had, and executed amazingly well. It also didn't have Matt Ullman, which is a, an amazing uh, audio composer. composer. Yeah, wow. I mean, it, it didn't have a lot of the more hardcore aspects. It didn't have the impact on on attacks that Torchlight has. Torchlight did everything that they did very well. And well, you can't help but learn lessons like that when you work on a game for as long as they did. Absolutely, you know? and I appreciate them for continuing their their goal because yeah. that style of gameplay. I mean, if you if you think about gameplay style as a as a gun, as a you know, it doesn't. You can make the gun look in, in many, a million different ways, but that kind of catalyst for gameplay uh, catalyst it's not really good I don't know what you're talking about so you're on you're on your own <laughs> all right well you know I'm this lost could you just talking <laughs> like, well, no, make your point I'm, just, I'm okay. trying to go out there with you let me let me if, if you're talking about how great all the weapons and effects feel then yeah I'm not at all yeah. actually the 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 point I'm trying to make is is totally getting muddled with my uh my well, analogy here I mean, let me let me just go back and say that the the way that the gameplay <laughs> functions in Diablo it was is amazing it's just clicking and it's simple it's yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes Diablo oh, is good Jesus. That's, right. I agree with that right. um, so, anyway um, so Torchlight Joe you've been playing Torchlight uh, is that all you've been uh, playing lately but are you besides everything else has been mentioned I'm still playing NBA 2K I'm still playing Magic Online I still play poker you know right are you excited about the expansions to Magic uh, well, given that an expansion comes out for Magic every three months, um, you're kind of in a perpetual state of adjusting to an expansion. Am I, so I'm not, I'm not I sure what that means. I think I'm a little confused. Do you, are you you're talking the, about uh, Duels of the Planeswalkers, yeah, probably? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about Magic Online, He's talking which about is the actual favorite right, card like game Magic. just played online. Which is funny, because when you said, are you excited about the expansions to Magic, I, I actually watched Grant over there deflate to some degree, <laughs> because I think he, <laughs> he's like, oh, dear God, true. this is going to this is gonna start Joe off on an hour and a half. Yeah, now. he knows, Joe knows that. For any length of time. Well, I could just say that um, from an, as an old-school Magic player who stopped a long time ago, mm-hmm. Duels of the Planeswalker is a nice... You know, breath of that old enjoyment that I had. There's there's a certain amount of nostalgia in in that game. Yep. <laughs> uh, I've heard that game is great, and I really feel like maybe anybody who hasn't played Magic in a long time, or somebody who's never played Magic, is really going to enjoy that. But anybody who's playing Magic, like the actual paper collectible card game, or playing Magic Online in a serious way, is already getting whatever it gives. And oh, absolutely! They just start the target audience. It's you know? kind of like it's kind of like how Portals was released to try to get people to get into Magic, and yeah, I believe the right. entire purpose behind Duels of the Planeswalkers is to try and draw old school Magic players back into the game to some degree. Uh, I it, it's like a gateway drug to Magic Online. Yeah, they really want I've, to. Yeah, I agree that it's that it's really a a sort of gateway thing, and they're not expecting to get more than I don't know one out of a hundred people to play that play duels of the planeswalkers to actually do anything beyond that but they want that one out of a hundred sure so yeah magic online that's awesome <laughs> um, so Jason yes what have you been playing really well 
I've been playing Demon's Souls and Monster Hunter. Too bad. Freedom Unite. Um, I've also been playing Arkham's Asylum. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I did play Wild Things 3 this weekend, which was cool. Seeing my game on the big screen and seeing all the flaws that I want to make sure never happen again in games that I make. Um, I also got my thousandth point in Dead Space last week, which was cool. Wow. So you've got a thousand points on where the wild things are, Dead Space, and what else? That's it. That it? <laughs> thousand nice. Oh, Xbox. 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 Do you have any games with that or with full, your full okay. complement? Okay. Let, uh, I had an Xbox 360 for eight months. I played it for two weeks. Never touched it again. For which wow. game? Uh... For no specific game. Okay, so I'm I've been I've been a Sony gamer since the PS One. Um, I I had Nintendo consoles when I was a kid. The PS One was the first console that I bought on my own, and uh, that was actually mine. And from that point forward, I've pretty much been a Sony gamer because mostly because their exclusives are the types of games that I like to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought a three C. I. To further the point of why I don't have a 360, I am not. I do not play games online. Like almost, I almost never play games online. Um, and so I bought a 360 because I got a pretty decent deal on, a, on an Elite about a year ago. And I bought that. I bought. I bought Gears. I bought Halo Three. I bought um, Crackdown. A few other games that I got all for cheap. I played Gears for 20 minutes. I played Halo 3 for about two hours. I downloaded a bunch of demos. I then turned off my 360 and never touched it again. Um, so do you have any... That being said, I have plat- cross-platform games that I play on my PS3. But right. Do you have any platinum trophies in, on the PlayStation 3, then? Not yet. I'm working on a few. Uh, I Platinum trophies and achievements are the things that I just don't have that time to, yeah, sure. to drive for. I, I want to, you know, because I'm like those kind of collectathon type things or something that I've always been, that I've always liked. And it's, it's always, it, the idea of achievement points and trophies has always been awesome to me because one of those, that's one of those gameplay mechanics that I always used to like in 3D platformers and stuff. You know, a lot of yeah, people, sure. a lot of people go off about how terrible like the concept of a collectathon is how you know it was awesome when you know when Mario sixty four came out and you were just running around collecting stars and that's great but somehow we need to evolve past that now and yet one of my favorite games uh, of the last several generations was the original Jack and Daxter which was nothing but a collectathon you run around and you collect precursor orbs and and random other things and that's that was the gameplay and and that was probably one of the most fun games I've played in a long time. Hmm. Arkham's Asylum did an amazing thing with their collectathon. The whole riddle Yeah. Was amazing. I mean well, that, that makes the collection involved and interesting and I loved it. Well yeah. and, and that's the thing is that I, th- I think a lot of people you know, the infamous did the same thing with like the dead drops and uh, other random things that they put through the, throughout the environment that you could collect and um, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people have a tendency. They're like, "Oh well," they, they they think about it on this other level where they're like, "All you're doing is collecting things." No, it's not that all you're doing is collecting things because the people that designed the game have have built this incredible um, world and this incredible like the game mechanics. They've spent a lot of time on the game mechanics and the control schemes and the level designs. 
so that you're not just collecting things. They are giving you reasons to run through their environments and see all the cool shit they've done. You know, they're giving you reasons to run around with this character that you like so much and giving you reasons to see all the environments that they've built and all of the work and the time and the effort that they've put into a level by giving you things that you need to go find in that level. But sometimes those are dumb reasons. Like in Infamous, they tried to to stick to to cram that into fiction, and it didn't work at all for me. Arkham Asylum, on the other hand, is very meta with like each of the villains has their own room and you scan them and like, oh, I've unlocked their dossier page and stuff like that. It's kind of abstracted. Whereas Infamous is like, you'll walk up to somebody on the street and they'll be like, yeah, the the crazy punk guys installed cameras all over my building. Could you take care of them? I'm like, no, they didn't. There's no way that yeah, that yeah, would do that. But I, one of the reasons that I enjoyed it as much as you did in Arkham Asylum was because it, it, it was very much abstracted, and I could go after that stuff if I want. And I'm a completist, and I found literally every single one, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I feel like in Arkham Asylum in particular... I love that game, and it's one of my top five of the year, I think I said on the last podcast. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the collection stuff really propped up the rest of that game. The combat was polished incredibly well, and it was a lot of fun. And like the, the, the boss fights were great, um, but there wasn't really much else to that game. Oh, it's true, but being, a guy, that's a bad thing. being a guy who oozes over game combat, that combat was... Again, complex in its simplicity. You had one button you press 90% of the time with a direction augment, and then two other buttons, well, actually three if you include the grappling hook thing, which was really cool, and I was pining for that until I actually got it, and then I used it every single time I got a chance. Uh, Anyway, what was I going to make this? Grant, though, aren't you essentially saying um, that game needed something to make it a complete game, and they no. did that perfectly. I don't really see. I don't really see that as propping up anything. No, I don't. I think Batman: Arkham Asylum was one of the more complete games of the year. I just feel like they, the the collection part was so huge. I think because you didn't do that much fighting in that game, you didn't do that much stealthing in that game. There were just a lot of really disparate elements that most games try to cram a lot of stuff like that into their game and fail because it's just too much. You know, I'm I'm glad you said that because I'm not a completist like you (laughs) and like most gamers and, you know, pretty much everyone I know. I will bypass pretty much anything optional if it allows me to realize progress more quickly. Um, And so usually games with completist elements really bug me. uh, And... It does it in one way or another. It either says, here's this totally optional stuff that you don't care about, at which point, you're right, I don't care, and I don't do it. Or, here is this non-optional stuff that is really just a bunch of padding that we put into the game, but if you want to have a great character, or if you want to, you know, be optimally successful at the game, you have to do it, then I will do it grudgingly, and I will resent the game for making me do it. So you're you're exactly right, I think, when you say that they did it correctly by providing, I don't know, at least something of a narrative, you know, sort of justification for going and doing that stuff. Joe, did you ever play Crackdown? <laughs> oh, jeez, no. You, you would, I think, possibly commit suicide playing that game. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's I, which is so. Jason Warnke's micro review of Crackdown. I love that game. Don't get me wrong. Me and a friend of mine, because I am a co-op fanatic, played through that game. Collected nearly every collectible possible because we wanted to just jump around and have a good time playing it. Um, but it was a completionist game for sure. Especially yeah. since it had really no story. <laughs> well, I would forgive the... a lot of things for a decent co-op experience because my wife is a gamer, but we rarely agree on the same kinds of games. So good co-op games are great for us because whichever style of game it is, whether it's the sort of thing she prefers or the sort of thing that I like, uh, one of us will sort of prop up the other in getting through it. Am I alone in the room uh, when it comes to games that are co-op, but actually are competitive, like Zelda Link, uh, Four Swords. Hate it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grieving. I'm, I really don't like anything blah. that creates tension in a co-op yeah, and I pushes agree. me towards competitiveness. Which is one of the things that scares me about New Super Mario Bros. Wii. I totally uh, agree. Like, I, I, I love the idea of going through a side-scrolling Super Mario Brothers game co-op uh, I'm I'm really afraid, like, because my wife and I play co-op games every once in a while, and I, I, I like, I think that we could have a lot of fun with that, but it would be one of those situations where we'd have to sit down beforehand and, and say, okay, <laughs> we could grief the crap out of each other in this game, but let's please not. Let's just go through it and have fun with it. I, it's um, baffling to me that they have functionality in that game for, like, if you jump on somebody's head, then they're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like, so, if you're over a pit, that's just... So there's, I don't know, I mean, when I look at a game like Zelda Four Swords... You know, me and three of my friends played, you know, about an hour of it, I think, because it's really hard to get four people together to do something like that. Um, it's just really endearing. I mean, you're running through, you're obviously working together to complete an, uh, a specific goal, and then suddenly one person is just like, you took my rupee, and you get into this crazy fight, and it allows you to do that. And then you move on, and you finish the game together. That's intentional. You guys are looking for that experience. Like, one of you will intentionally be like, Oh, I didn't mean to pick up that 20 rupees. How'd that happen? I thought, motherfucker, right? But, I mean, it's like on a PvP server in WoW. I mean, there's obviously going to be those stupid idiot people that you don't want to play with who are sitting there, going to kill you over and over again, and you're like, All right, I'm done. I don't want to play this anymore. Yes. But then you you have these co-op experiences where you're allowed to do similar things like that. It's just like playing baseball. I mean, this conversation is giving me a little insight into why you're playing Demon Souls too. I mean, mean, no. Well, I mean, let's not let's not put too fine a gloss on it, though. I mean, even the pure cooperative experiences available in WoW also create a competitive tension where if a few members of the group aren't up to snuff. That, that the rest of the group is going to be angry at them. Yeah. So all of this, I mean, why, why I'm specifically worried about this in, in New Super Mario Brothers Wii and Luke, if I'm not speaking for you, feel free to speak up, is that I don't want to ax- I, I want to play it with Virginia. I think the two of us would have a lot of fun playing it. I don't want to jump over a pit with her and accidentally jump on her head and she falls to her death. That's a serious That's, that's asking for marital problems right there. That's just a... a <laughs> See, I'm not, cool in off. my relationship, I'm not worried about me doing it to her, because she, she's a fairly casual gamer. She she takes this stuff really well. If she dies, she'll be like, oh, that was funny. If she does it to me, I'll react like an idiot and, Fair. and, and <laughs> stew for the next 30 minutes about it, you know? That doesn't sound like you. <laughs> Well, well, see, and that's that's the thing is like I was at PAX and I saw people demoing the four player to the new Super Mario's Wii. It's awesome, 
when you get a group of complete and utter strangers standing at a TV messing around with it, that's that's fun because people don't know each other. When you get two people that know each other well and are friends and are want, wanting to play through it, I think that's a... I don't want to say dangerous because that's a really strong word, but a dangerous element to put into a game like that, having that kind of griefing um, with, with two people that just want to kind of play through and have fun with yes, it. Exactly. You, end up, you end up in a scenario where you could accidentally ruin someone's fun yes. when you're trying to complete the game. And people who play, like, Smash Brothers and Mario Party and stuff like that, they're used to the idea of, I can fuck with you somehow. But, sure. like, the, the concept of that in a Super Mario Brothers game is completely alien. So then, do, do does everyone else in the room agree or prefer games where you're basically playing a game with somebody else, but separately? Not separately. I... No, it's no. I, I mean, can't. the best co-op experiences out there involve some sort of synergy between you and the mm-hmm. person you're playing with that elevates the experience for both people. So you can't you can't put too many barriers between how they are allowed to affect each other. But at the same time, I mean, I just feel like the emphasis needs to be on I can either positively affect your experience or I can fail to positively affect your experience. Yeah. So, when so you start adding elements that are, I can also negatively expect, affect your experience. But if you are able to interact with somebody at all, you can positively or negatively um, alter their experience. I mean, if, if we're having, if we're all sitting in the room together, if I walk over and push you, then I'm, I'm altering your experience. If I, if I fluff your pillow, then I'm altering but just your experience. Because I can but play, just because I can play Halo cooperatively with another person... Uh, I can positively expect affect their experience by sitting up on a ridge and sniping people that they're not seeing coming up to them. But just because I can't shoot them does not mean that I'm not, you know, that that, that experience is somehow lessened, right? Right. Like I, I can still positively expect someone, uh, affect someone's experience without being able to... Per- Specifically, grief them, or I could throw a grenade on you and it would detonate and kill you. I mean, it's it's one of those. So uh, so okay, uh, but that's well, that's, 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 that's what I think I was trying to say. Is that, that is a great example of what I'm talking about because if you and I are playing Halo together and we have uh, friendly fire turned off, for example, Fair. then we are both shooting in a shooting gallery together. Not we're shooting at the same shooting gallery, but we're not. Together, I mean, it is the, yeah, fair. You're but assuming that your bullets aren't damaging the same thing that that my bullets are. Oh, no, that, no, even I, that, but at a minimum, is you're playing together. But you're yeah. not together. It's 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 two bubbles shooting at one bubble. I mean, does that make it, sense? It depends. I mean, that's a valid opinion. I don't agree with that, but I can see where you would think that you're wrong. But. <laughs> yeah, I generally agree with Grant. I mean, one of the best co-op experiences I've ever had. And most people probably don't even know this exists, but like a year after System Shock 2 came out, they put out a multiplayer patch where you could suddenly play the game co-op. And anybody who's ever played that game will tell you that it is a stressful game, like particularly at higher difficulties where enemies can respawn behind you and shit like that. They, they really do the atmosphere of you're scared and you're alone very well. And it completely changes the game when another person can suddenly watch your back. So you go up to hack a terminal or whatever, and normally that would involve a complete submission to that minigame while God knows what happens in the real world in your environment. 
But when you're playing co-op, somebody can just sit there and guard you while you do it, and it changes the game into something completely different that is still fun. And I think the number one thing that they did right about it is they didn't create a situation where having another person pissed you off because it made the experience harder. The, the other person could positively contribute to your experience, or they could fuck that up and not positively contribute to your experience. There was really no way that they could negatively experience, or, or I'm sorry, they could negatively contribute to what you were experiencing. And yet, you know, you say that that's your, that that's prob- probably your favorite co-op experience. Well, it's, it's would, a weird one. It's It was good. Well, I just, I, I mean, eventually there probably will be a System Shock 3. It'll probably be disappointing to us, but I would, <laughs> I would pretty much guarantee that there's not going to be co-op in that, and that's sad, you know? Well, there shouldn't be. I mean, the essence of that game was the game as it was originally made. Yeah, of course. And if somebody if somebody made that game with co-op in it, we would not remember it as this fantastic, incredibly immersive, environmentally awesome game. No, we would remember it for being an awesome game with a co-op experience because there were there really weren't any back then. But yeah, the game as it should be experienced is by yourself hyperventilating. <laughs> right. Yeah. With, so, with, so Joe, could well, you humor my? Um... Uh, my semantics here real quick. Yeah, System I love Shocks, semantics. Uh, System Shock was a game based or d- designed to make you tense and scared. So you're playing right. it with the idea that you want to be somewhat tense and enjoy this horrific experience. And then you add a co-op element where they're watching your back and you feel less tense. Doesn't that negatively affect your gameplay? Because I think no, because it's a different experience. But well, yeah, yeah, it really ahead. just changed it into something was, else. Yeah, it's a different game. It's like System Shock 2 Gaiden. It's the equivalent of, you know, Final Fantasy uh, X took itself seriously, and Final Fantasy X2 really, really didn't. Well, and I think that in a, in a more recent... Not not to compare it to System Shock 2, because they're, they're, there's not much comparison other than they're both first-person. Uh, Resistance, the first Resistance... Yeah. Uh, had the same kind of scenario with um, multiplayer, with its multiplayer co-op, where the single-player experience in Resistance, if you're playing it on anything higher than easy, was um, frantic and chaotic and very, um, very well designed to to kind of give you this not scare, but like the the kind of jump scare, right? Like you, you know, every there was you never knew when something was going to be shooting at you from around a corner or pop up from out of nowhere. And that experience changed when you played a co-op, but it didn't... It was a different experience. It wasn't a ruined experience. Um, And I think that can happen if co-op is done right, which is one of the things that pissed me off about Resistance 2, to be honest, was how they changed the co-op so that it's no longer... You can't play through the campaign co-op anymore. (laughs) I've never... I don't think I've ever played Resistance. I I am not a console shooter guy. Um, I tried to get into Killzone 2 from Gamefly when that came out because I heard great things about it. It's just, the, that genre is not for me. I, I feel like Killzone is a long Except game the fact that Uncharted 2 is the game of the year. That's not a shooter. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not, and even if it was, it's not first some person. Degree it is. I'm talking about first person console yeah. shooters. Uh, Resistance, for me, was an exception. Like, I liked, I liked Halo, and that was really, 
Um, the only game, the only first-person shooter before that that I actually enjoyed was Time Splitters, and that was because oh, wow. I used to play it for four-player multiplayer. I and, really, and really that was that one of the, It was so good. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so, I hate um, it, but I remember. I yeah, think about I, the, I think about the co-op games that I, I've played recently, and I enjoy, and um, Castle Crashers is one of them, and griefing in that game is not really common or an option. I mean, you can't beat each other up to the point where you're screwing over each other's gameplay, um, I play a lot of Horde mode, which is all co-op. Um, I play, oh, sorry, and that's Gears of War too. Um, play a lot of. Uh, it does try and have co-op. I was really. It does. I, that's one of the reasons I bought it. And Virginia and I have not played it together. Is it is it only hot seat? Can you only play together on on the same couch, or can yeah, you play there's over? no online. Okay. It's sad. Well, we should play that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, we're ending the podcast now. Yeah. No, I, I just. I like games that offer the ability to mess with your friends, but it's not the, the focus of gameplay. Maybe it's just because I like to play with people that I can trust, but that's yeah, well, a completely would, psychological thing. Which I would be games. very surprised if any of us preferred playing with people we didn't know. <laughs> like, I, I, I assume that there are people out there who prefer to just go mix it up with some stranger and, and, and be really juvenile and profane. Otherwise, Call of Duty wouldn't be nearly as popular as it is. Well, okay. I'll, I'll be that guy. I'll, I'll provide that perspective. Poker doesn't count. Um, <laughs> in, in some circumstances, uh, when you play a co-op multiplayer game, you, you really want to play with your friends. And, like, every MMO I've ever played has been like that. Things are a million times better when you're running a five-man or whatever with yep. your friends. Um, but if you play a competitive game, a lot of times you really want to play against people who take that game seriously. And it can be very difficult to find folks of a similar mindset in your circle of friends. So you will actively discourage those people from playing with you so that you can play against people who take the game as seriously as you do. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Has anybody here played Brutal Legend multiplayer? Not yet. No. Yeah, I don't either. Because like I, I'm only barely into Brutal Legend, uh, so really the only thing I've played in it is effectively an action platformer. I haven't gotten into any of the RTS elements yet, but uh, I've I think heard. Yeah, go ahead. Terrible, terrible. I really love it. that game in a lot of ways, and it is a very imperfect game. But I will have to say, and I apologize to those double fine guys that I know. If if you ever listen to this podcast, the multiplayer in that game. Co-op multiplayer is the most uh, inaccessible multiplayer I've ever played. In what sense? Um, they actually have a system which makes it hard to play with people you like. And by that I mean you all have one army, and it is impossible to separate forces per people. So if we are all playing together, we have one army to use together, and it, the selection mechanic is kind of like oh. a hammer as opposed to a scalpel. So I say, all of my units, come to me! And it actually takes everyone well, nearby. The hammer scalpel thing is kind of true. Holy crap! It's kind of true of any uh, <laughs> RTS-type mechanic on a console. Like, I haven't yeah. found one yet that even remotely can, you know, equate to a, a mouse click, you know? If, if they had really just given you the ability to, um, you and your friend fight an army of whatever, you know, ex, you know, the, the demon guys, just, you have your avatar, he has an avatar, and you're just fighting and doing solos and just massacring everyone as they come by, I think that would have been a much better experience than... 
And see, this is where, as a gamer, I want to say to developers, where the hell does this shit come from? Because I think all four of us are going, well, obviously, that's the way you would do it. So, so why article. on earth did it get published the other way? There was an article with Tim Schafer. And Tim Schafer has a little more power than he needs, maybe? No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, actually, uh, from, from what the article, as far as I understand it, um, he has less power than he, he, ha- he wants. Um, the people of the IP wanted that game to be more brutal and more... Uh, third-person action as opposed to RTS, and he really wanted an RTS game. And a lot of the well, RTS games wrong. were there, and uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the elements were there, they just it kind of got muddled into this other stuff. And the, honestly, the thing that I love about it is the hardcore rock scene, I mean, the, the metal stuff, yeah, which all those references. That's the, the story was Which so is interesting, fun, because it right? seems like you're screwing with your target market when you have a game that is based on hardcore metal and giant <laughs> monsters and a big fucking axe and well, the, then you go, well, let's let's make it an RTS. Well, you know, the and, single uh, player experience with the RTS elements, I thought that was fine and that was fun and it was interesting. Um, it's so just, far it it's fun. I haven't gotten deep enough into it to actually be able to tell you whether I agree. It just me. didn't transfer over, over into co-op multiplayer. That's... You know, well, but, I mean, we, we could talk about Brutal Legend forever, and maybe we should, because I feel like... I can't. I feel like if there's any game that embodies sort of design lessons that has <laughs> come out recently, that that might be the the best starting point. <laughs> you could say, I mean, you could write a thesis on every one of Tim Schafer's games. Sure. I mean, Brutal Legend is a great example of either trying to do too much in one game or not not catering to the right audience or marketing it the wrong well, we way. Psychonauts is a different problem. The, I mean, the turret system. We the started mini game about focus. In oh, what? God. The turret minigame in, in Brutal Legend. I've only, I played for like two hours and hated okay. the RTS stuff. There is a stuff. turret element. Uh, a minigame where you put the car on a turret and you fire at guys that are spawning in around you completely mm-hmm. randomly. And that was a an element of the game that I thought was just completely thought up at the last second because it had so little feedback to the player, which, by the way, feedback is something that I focus in on almost every single day, making sure that every element of my design is represented to the player in a proper way. Oh, thank God. So so I I have to interrupt you just for a second as a gamer and say about feedback. One of the games I've been playing, as as regular listeners, of course, know, is uh, NBA 2K10, uh, where I am a dude who's in the NBA. And literally, every time I finish a game right now, my advisor, with air quotes, as Grant likes to say, I hate that comes, to, comes to me and says, Hey, man, you have a major decision to make about your career. These teams are interested in you. And nothing pops up. There are no teams. He just he just always says that. And I'm not sure if maybe there's like a screen I don't know about called teams that are interested in you that I should go to and like look at. But I, think I can't you're supposed find it. to you're supposed to open up the manual. He like he says a code, like a three digit code, and you turn to the manual and like well, use the special red cellophane from the old Transformers. Bottle. And this isn't the first time this has happened. There was a there was a series of, of plays when I was in the development league where he would say, "Man, I got some bad news. Your team decided to cut you, but I got a call from the GM of quote unquote the same team that just cut you, and then <laughs> good news, and then." The, the the actual mechanical like outcome here is nothing. It's as though he never said anything to me because 
the team didn't cut me, I'm still on it, and I play the next game with them. Well, and that's, so, I mean, that sounds like completely QA, and I get the feeling that I haven't played NBA Live in, I think, 14 years, but I get the <laughs> feeling that, that EA wouldn't have let something like that happen, and 2K is well, just kind of still trying to find their footing, you know? Like, I love this feature. I love so much just the fact that the basketball simulation is pretty good, and for the most part, I can play a dude who's not really all that talented next to professional basketball players, and I can do my thing, and I can set screens, and I can wait for them to pass to me, and every once in a while I get an open shot, and I can be like, my best ever game was the time I scored 16 points. You know? That is awesome. I love that. Maybe the fact that your dude isn't that great and you've only scored 16 points is the it, maybe they're maybe they're being realistic about it and your your advisor no, I, I is just trying to make really you like feel that. better and you're not actually getting offers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the point. Is, is this is this a, um, a uh, an echo from your childhood when you weren't picked in a, a basketball? <laughs> well, no, it's like actually four, really six. cool to be like, well, of course I'm not as good as Kobe. <laughs> you know, of course that, uh, you know, I'm not going to score 40 points a game in the NBA. That's fine. And, of course, I'm also building through the RPG elements. I'm building up to the point where I will be that guy. I will be the superstar, and I'll get to, you know, do all those things. I'm enjoying this part of my career where I, you know, I'm not the best guy on the court, and I have to kind of use sound, fundamental like understanding of the sport in order to succeed. But the fact that that is done well, and then I come back to the actual, like, screen where I manage my player and I do things with him and I increase his skill points and stuff like that, and this guy's like, hey, dude, there's some teams that are interested in you, but I but I won't tell you what they are. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, maybe the game's totally fucked and bugged, but you have no way to know, and maybe your whole save is corrupt and you should have started over a week ago. You know, it, it's... Well, that sucks. At some companies... Those the people who worked on the 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 advisor team and the people who worked on the rest of the game never talked to each other, and that's I mean designing in a box. Yeah, I mean, and and so I think part of that is due to bad is is due to QA not stepping up or something. I don't know what that it sounds to. weird, but I mean, it's it well, also comes from self righteousness a lot of the time and yeah. um, being, designers knowing everything. Being a lead designer, um, it. I've seen a lot of people who have hubris in the industry, and uh, I won't name names, and I'm not trying to insinuate people. Please don't raise your hand. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's just people sometimes say something, and they think that it's golden, when in actuality, if they had talked to everyone else, they would have realized that it's shit, and yeah, not true. Sure. From a tester's perspective, too, there, there have been numerous times when I have tested games where the developer has literally come back and told me as someone who is testing the, you know, t from a, from a free, free form testing perspective, if I'm not given a test plan and I'm just told, go play the game and try and break it, you know, mess around with it, see what you can do, just try and play through it, see what happens. And I write a bug and then a developer comes back and said, no one will ever do this. <laughs> like Wait, that's if you ever hear that from no. a developer, then they have not been a developer very long. Now, don't don't get me wrong. There are definitely bugs that have been written up that are that what are termed as tester bugs. There are things that mm -hmm. some people will never do. You know, just and if they uh, do, just they're this, a hostile player, right? Just random confluence of a like eight billion different things that somebody just tried to do to break the game. But when when you're just playing through 
a game front to back, just trying to complete it, and you encounter a bug, and and someone who's working on the game comes back at you and says, like, how would how would anyone ever do this? Um, it it sometimes, like for me, has demonstrated a um, a disconnect between the person that's actually writing the code and the person that's going to be playing the game. Like a huge like disconnect. And in a lot of ways, it's the job of project management in software development teams to say, hey, we got tester feedback and we're going to take it very seriously mm-hmm. and we're going to address these issues. Um, you know, I, we probably shouldn't talk forever about, you know, fixing bugs in, in software and all that sort of thing. But it just, when when a developer said, hey, you should care about feedback and giving feedback to your player, uh, the NBA 2K thing immediately leapt to mind. But I don't know that that there have been hardly any games that I have played where at some point I don't find myself going, a little more feedback would be useful. Like, let me opt out of it. Let me let me check the thing that says no tips or whatever. But for the most part, the more feedback I get, the the more I like the game. Which yeah, actually kind of segues into a great question that I have for the non-developers in the room, or somewhat in the room. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about uh, text trying to fe- give you feedback, like you know, tips at the bottom of the screen or big words that say, don't go in here! It's going to erase your save or, you know, things like that. Depends on how well it's integrated into the uh, the gameplay. I mean... Well, that's interesting that you say that because I actually feel like I need to be interrupted when, when a tip... Uh, for example, uh, a lot of games list gameplay tips on loading screens and I have a tendency to zone out and not even read them. But when I do something... Like, let's say I'm playing, I don't know, a Diablo clone, and I roll up and I click on, uh, you know, a spell item for the first time, and it says, yo, you just clicked on a spell item, stop, read this thing that I just obtrusively thrust up onto the screen, and know that that's what spell items are all about. You don't feel like somebody is literally grabbing your face. Because I am liable to just gloss over anything that's presented to me environmentally or too integrated into the story or whatever. Really? Because I'm the exact opposite. Like, um, I I think it depends on how... Partially depends on the aesthetics of the game. Like, if there are some games that can do it right in that obtrusive... Uh, in, intrusive is the word I was trying to say. Intrusive way where they do it kind of tongue in cheek, right? Like if, if the game has kind of a tongue in cheek feel and it, it does it, you know, partially informatively and partially comedically, where it's like just throwing something in your face to 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 give you a tip, then that can work really well. But then there's the other there's the other end of the spectrum where the the game that I thought did it really really well was Dead Space, where everything in that game was intended to be immersive. It was intended that, you know, your HUD was not just... It was not this thing that was separate from your character. It was part of your character's equipment. It was something that your character, you know, that you had in-game. Um, and that, you know, to, to some degree from a, from a mechanical perspective, it got a little annoying when I was trying to read something on my inventory and I had to turn my character just the right way to be able to see it. But um, I just don't like it's the in between it's the in between in those two things that where it becomes a problem, right? Where like you said, if it's on a loading screen, sometimes I won't read it, or if it just doesn't 
fit. It, well, it, it's a game that's attempting to be immersive. Like if I got, um, it, like if if gameplay halted and I got a ridiculous text, uh, text hint in the middle of playing Uncharted Two, like that would that would be problematic to me. I would, see, it would I think me. a game needs to not make too many assumptions about how I'm going to play it, and so it needs to grab my attention when it wants to tell me something very important. I'll be honest, I'm one of those people that when I played World of Warcraft, I have never read a World of Warcraft quest description all the way through. When, you just, when you just I, made Grant uh, start crying I've here. given up. I don't, I mean, there are so many <laughs> well, He knows this about me, whatever. Um, it, it, when, when I roll up to one of those people, I want them to very quickly tell me you know, why I need to, or what do I need to kill? Do I need to kill 15 scorpions? Awesome. I'm going to go do that. Check you later. Um, I think that there are some games that make it very clear to you that they don't want you as a player, kind of, if you're not going to buy into the immersion that they're trying to create. I'm going to bring up System Shock 2 again, where they tell the story of that game through uh, this very creepy sort of feeling isolated situation where you just keep finding recordings of people talking and usually you're like standing very close to the, the spot where that person died when you are reading the recording and it tells you things that you need to know in order to progress in the game and I, I feel like that was okay because that game makes it very clear very early that it's an environmental narrative game and you need mm-hmm. to buy into that if you want to play it well, but I feel like a game like World of Warcraft too. wants to be all things to all people, and so when you when you go to get a quest, there had better be a way for the person who does not give a shit about the story to figure out what the quest objective is. And every time I play an RPG, and I get a quest, Don't compare and then RPGs later to I find that there's no log or something that I can go back and find out exactly what I was supposed to do, that really pisses me off. I... I think MMOs are an exception, not the rule, though. I don't think WoW's trying to be everything to everybody. I think WoW is trying to be everything to all the people that used to play EQ. Um, with, well, except know, many, many, many more people play WoW than ever played EQ. Well, sure. I um, think it's uh, interesting. Um, you actually touched on something that I, I feel very strongly about in games in general. Uh, I believe that design needs to be invisible to gameplay in a lot of ways because uh, the art is beautiful, and that is what you see. The music makes you feel a sense of emotion that you may get also from the story as well, but um, the design of elements, like you said, in System Shocks 2, well, System Shock 2, it's part of the story. This guy says, oh, God, my, my I, I haven't played it in so long, I really have forgotten most of the game mechanics, but you know, he says this this particular lock is unlocked by this particular item, and the item has to be, happens to be sitting in his hand, um, and you realize, oh, I need to pick up this item and, and get through this door here. Uh, that kind of stuff, like, um, Arkham's Asylum did that well with those gratings and the, the grappling hook and, mm-hmm. you know, kicking that stuff through. But there's really not much difference between... Because that has nothing to do with explaining gameplay. And, like, the tooltips that, that tell you how to play World of Warcraft, they have those in System Shock too as well. They're at the beginning. And there's there's really not that much difference between a guy playing an audio log that says, I lock this stuff in a, in a, um, in a safe. The combination is six, eight, two, one, four with, 
you going up to an orc in Orgrimmar and him saying, go fetch me ten gizzards. Except well, you, people will want to hear the guy creepily saying, oh god, I locked this thing in, the, in this safe because I needed to, and here's the combo. If somebody you know comes through that needs it, please go go check that out because, oh, and then they die. Right, no you're, you're playing it's... the game to hear shit like that, whereas you might not be playing World of Warcraft to talk to this stupid orc. Here's where it breaks the experience and becomes a problem, though. So you come across the recording of this guy going, oh, I hid X item in this safe, and uh, you here's the combination. In order to enter the combination, press left on the D-pad and then move the right analog stick until you get the number you want. You know, that's, that's when I think it breaks the experience, and I, I've had problems with games where they have an in-game character trying to tell you how to do something, and when they are telling you how to do something, they are telling you to do it by explaining the controller, like this this item that is outside my game. Well, that, play, that's breaking the like, fiction. That's no longer being um, immersive. Into, it's not, no longer being right. visible. That is being very vulgar as saying, yeah. this and is a game. Does that bother you guys? I mean, it doesn't really bother me. It as does. a developer, it bothers the crap out of me. I would rather see those, those designs be extremely invisible, but it's impossible. It's impossible. But I mean, how else clear. would you do it? Like, if you needed to tell somebody... Seriously, you need to press the analog stick in this direction to do this. How do you do it if you don't want a character to ever say, press the analog stick? Give them a basic set of commands at the beginning that... Well, how do you do that? I mean, well, even, I mean even, that no, that's that's so, always going to be that's always going to be outside of the immersion. But once the thing is, is like at the at the beginning of the game, if you tell, or in the even in the manual to some degree, if you tell somebody what their controls are. Um, and then later on, um, it becomes kind of evident that a specific type of control is going to affect a specific item in a specific way. That's that's an excellent design, in my opinion, because eventually there is some point in every single game that's played where you have to explain to the user how to use their controller to interact with this game. Right? It's just necessary. It has to happen. You know, this is going to surprise some people probably because I've shit on this game in the past, but um, one of the games that I remember doing that really well was the original Tomb Raider on consoles because there's actually this really stupid tongue-in-cheek tutorial where you have to, like, move Laura Croft through her house and she, like, (laughs) takes a swim in her pool and stuff like that and she talks to you the entire time while breaking the fourth wall but it's very, very clearly not part of the game yet. So, and, yeah. Uh, back in Brutal... Back to, going back to Brutal Legend, um, I thought their tutorializing was amazing because it was, first off, really tongue-in-cheek, and it was uh, very integrated into the story, and it was... They did... I'm not sure if you, know, you guys picked up on it, but the first room you go into is a room full of... It just with, with one object in it, it was the axe. Uh-huh. You're completely able to walk around to that room learning motion... Just however you want to, you realize that there's no jump button. You start messing around. You, you can't do much. And then the moment you get close to it, a little pop-up thing above or pops up above his head that says press B to pick up, or whatever it was, to pick up the axe. You pick it up, and then suddenly a bunch of baddies spawn around you. There's a whole little story element. Then the first thing you see is it pops up above his head, X, to attack. And then you start attacking. It's impossible yeah. to miss it because it's right there. Well, and we know exactly what we're doing. You the three of us in this room, and Joe, you as well, have experience with these games enough to know I move the left analog stick to move, 
when a button appears that's round. Oh, come computer. on. An X appears over his head and it says X to attack. How, how is that ambiguous at all? It's I was getting to that asshole. Shut up. <laughs> uh, what I mean is it's pretty invisible. It's not stopping you and saying, look, bastard, you must do this exactly as I tell you to do it. It's allowing you to experiment and it says, oh, hey, by the way, do but this because that's what you need to do. But right in now. some degree, that's no different than what Joe was talking about with the with the the Tomb Raider thing. It's it's to be entirely honest, while it's a it's kind of an intro to the game. It's it's very clear clear to the game player that this is this is your introduction, and eventually this foundation will set up everything else you need to do in the game. But Laura Croft never mentions the mouse or an analog stick or anything like that. The stuff. That no, she I mentioned. think she does in that. I think she really says, "If you want me to do X, you have to hit the Y button." Wow, that was. I don't remember well, that. But and that's the thing that's is bad. that's what we were we were talking about it being tongue in cheek to some degree. Like I think it's sometimes it's funny when you're going through one of those tutorials in the beginning of a game and. Like, God, I wish I could remember what game it was that did this recently, where um, a character is talking to you and they say, um, you know, in order to perform this action, you need to press the X button. I don't really know what that means. Yeah, right? You know, and, and that kind of tongue-in-cheek breaking of the fourth wall can be an interesting way to handle it as long as it's not pervasive, right? As long as it, if it happens at the beginning to give you a foundation for what you need to do later, then you go into the game, and then from that point forward, you are immersed. Then now, I have to admit, I don't see anything about what you guys are saying that is superior to just popping a very obtrusive tooltip up and saying, hey, if you ever want to do this again, remember to hit X. So, I'm going to sound like I'm... I'm uh, just completely on both sides of the fence at the same time. Mass Effect did an amazing job with their tutorializing as well because they have an ex- ex- extremely obtuse set of controls. Extremely. And they also failed in their inventory system, but that's beside the point. Um, they start you off on the ship, you move around, you learn that way. By It pops up and says, use the analog stick to move, use the A button to interact. And it is uh, obstructive to gameplay because it stops you and makes you learn that. And then they do the same thing with their radial uh, skills and um, weapon selection trees, and they stop you and say do this to do this, and it's actually pretty nice. It doesn't feel weird. It didn't feel weird in that game anyway. I wouldn't be able to chime it under Blade Mass Effect. <laughs> I played, well, I, yeah, I mean, Mass Effect on the consoles is has its issues that I'm sure they'll fix by the sequel, but um, I, I don't know this issue is one that everybody making any game pretty much ever has to wrestle with and you know Mm -hmm. there's many different ways of doing it and I've heard many smart people say diametrically opposed things about uh, about how you should do it eventually we'll have a controller that is uh interwoven into your skin and you will simply do the motion you need to (laughs) that sounds awesome that sounds terrible how about a flying game where you're flapping your arms oh Oh, yeah let's do that (laughs) <laughs> See, I, th- I think, not to, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think part of it also comes down to uh, whether or not, not whether the game specifically handles that aspect well, but if the game play in general is just good enough to overshadow the fact that that's happening. You know, they, there's, all games have to teach you their controls to some point, but if there's, but there's a certain amount of, of leeway you'll give a game that, that handles it better than others. You know, yeah. you know, if a game is like, 
like Uncharted, I'll give Uncharted 2 and Uncharted, uh, you know, that, in that there's there's quick time events throughout those games, and I think it's better in Uncharted 2 than it was in 1. In 1, they frustrated the shit out of me, like the, the quick time events that popped up. But, um... There are you no know, quick time events in Uncharted. <laughs> in Uncharted two, there aren't any. Do we want to do want to wow, talk about quick time events real quick? Well, you know, uh, I'll start the conversation about quick time events just by saying, uh, most people I talk to hate them, and, okay. and I, I don't quite get it because, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Indigo Prophecy. <laughs> I yeah. played it all the way through. I thought it was pretty good, um, and I found myself, you know listeners of the podcast will realize that I'm one of those folks that don't particularly like to have to be passive while the story is told by a game. But if a game tells me, hey, this is basically just a movie, every once in a while we're going to ask you to hit some buttons to make the movie go forward. I don't know, it actually bothered me a lot less than a game that actually tells me it's really a game. So here's, here's where it bothered me with Uncharted 1 is that in every instance where there is a quick time event in that game, it is asking you to press a button that you would have pressed anyway to avoid the event that it is it is turning into a quick time event. For example, you're climbing up a, bu- a big ledge, you are hanging from a particular ledge, and that ledge starts to collapse. Normally, you would hit the X button to jump to the next ledge, Instead of simply allowing you to do that by showing the ledge collapsing and making you react to it, it flashed the X button up on the screen and went, smash it, smash it, smash it! And if you didn't do it fast enough, you fell to your death, which you would have done anyway. This gets back to the, the feedback thing. If that wasn't there, you'd know to do it if you were paying attention. If you were paying attention because the game designed should have been designed well enough to let you do that anyway. But if the moral of the last com- part of the conversation was, you know, gleaned, I mean, there's no such thing as too much feedback. So then, really, your problem with it is that there's too much feedback. I, it's too much, it's not the right feedback. Not the right feedback, exactly, right? Like, especially, um, not to, I, I think the statute of limitations on spoilers for Uncharted 1 are, is, is run out, so I'm going to talk about the very final fight scene. Um, the very end of the game, you are on a boat, and you go through three stages where you move into a stage, you shoot a fuckload of dudes, but the one dude you need to kill, you can't shoot. Yeah. Like, you shoot him right in the fucking head and it does nothing so you shoot all the guys that are supporting him they all die he runs to the next stage you move in you shoot all those guys It It, it was very game it was very bad and then to cap it all off in a game that has to be honest some of the most cinematic gameplay sequences I've ever seen in video games uh some of the like most interactive cinematic gameplay sequences if that makes any sense at all um then you get to the very final fight, and basically you you don't have a gun. Bad guy has a gun, and you are simultaneously like hiding from his gunfire and then waiting for opportunities to walk up to him, melee him, and actually eventually end the fight. And they turned those all into quick time sequences that involved giving you a time limit in which to hit the same fucking button you would hit if you had just walked up to him and wanted to punch him in the goddamn nose. And it was so aggravating because of the fact that instead of making it fit within the 
the suspension of disbelief they had already built in the video game, they put a big flashy button on the screen and gave you an artificial time limit. So do you think that the the camera might have been an issue there? I, I haven't beaten that game. And, uh, so. Thank you for ruining it for me. <laughs> yeah. um, it yeah. doesn't matter because you just move on to play the second one, which is infinitely But better, I have I to wonder, I mean, a gameplay camera is a huge design problem. Having the gameplay camera screw you over more than having you do it in a quick time sequence, would that have bothered you more? I don't I don't think it would have been an issue in this particular game because they did a really good job of handling how the camera switched between ultimate control and those moments when it was a fixed camera or a, a fixed camera movement for cinematic effect. Um, you know, they, they frequently switched back and forth in that game t- between straight-up third-person platformer controls where you had ultimate control over the camera and you could move it wherever you wanted, and sequences where you were uh, moving through an area or hanging from a ledge, and it the the game just took the camera over for you and and made it kind of made a cinematic movement or focused fixed it on a focused yeah, I will, on something. I will totally agree with you there. If the game has already gotten you used to the idea that a fixed camera might suddenly become involved, mm-hmm. then the developers are really under an obligation if they want to make a finely tuned fight where the camera can't mess with you, then they have all the tools at their disposal. They can put the camera anywhere they want. They can design the environment any way they want. And so they need to make that work. Well, what really felt bad about the last fight in Uncharted 2 as well was the fact that they had given you all of these tools throughout the course of the game to become better at all the things that they had taught you how to do right at the beginning. They, they taught you how to be a melee fighter if you needed to be. They taught you how to use all the guns really well. And then they, then they took all that away from you at the end. They, they, didn't, they didn't give you the ability to use this awesome combo that you had learned how to do in melee combat. Instead, they made you run up to the enemy and pray to God that you managed to press triangle at the right time. So You're talking that, about Uncharted 1. Or Uncharted 1, sorry. Uncharted yeah. 2 didn't do this. Uh, and pray to God that you press the button in the right time instead of, you know, they, they basically built this amazing gameplay and then they just stripped it from you at the end because it's almost like they couldn't, they couldn't figure out how to, how to end it. Hey, Grant, can, can you guess what this reminds me of? Um, Jedi Knight Jedi fights? <laughs> it, no, that's not what I was going to say, but it's the same, it's the same universe. Do you remember the way you reacted to the end of Knights of the Old Republic? Oh, Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes, I did. I do. Where you had all... it, Just like he was saying, the game had taught you to play it in a certain way, and you had built this character that had all these force powers that complemented each other and all that yep. crap, and the final fight really requires you to do this very gimmicky sequence of things yep. that your play style did not support not at all. Not my play so style. Not impossible for you. My skill tree the last boss fight in Knights of the Old Republic requires you to be able to target a single target and use a force power to like destroy the batteries that this guy's feeding off of whatever. This game is like 13 years old. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I was, as I always do in these games, I play a complete lawful good goody two-shoes paladin 
and I had no dark side force powers, and so I had nothing that could target a single target. Oh. Right, you were nothing but like enhance myself, yes. become faster, become like more dexterous, exactly. jump all over the place. And none of that like shit that. mattered because uh, because the game required you to target these things and destroy them. So it took the final boss fight took me probably about a half an hour or forty five minutes. Uh, way to take a book from the Jason uh, self uh, make games harder. Bible then. I well, I, I, I am <laughs> completely on the opposite side of the fence with you on that, both from a Yeah, in that particular and... instance, you, like, if you're going to give a player to, the tools to follow a specific path, you better make sure that that path is viable, uh, viable by the time they reach the end of the game, yeah. you know? Especially with Uncharted, it's, it didn't have as much customizability, but and, it yeah. was... Which almost made it more well. No, I guess it can't make it more actually, than building an entire skill tree no, in an RPG to make Grant it and make that. it entirely useless at the end. Yeah, this the weird thing about what Grant told me that was really just that I loved that game and I wanted to talk to him about how I loved that game. And when we got to the end of the thing, you know, I had played this sort of, well, I'll get a couple neutral powers, and, you know, I didn't go out of my way to be a bad guy and kill puppies and all that stuff. You never do. But, but I had, I had, uh, you know, some power that enabled me to get through that fight, and to me, that experience was deployed very successfully. I just, oh, okay, I have to destroy these things. Oh, I can target them with force push or whatever. So I did that, and the fight reeled itself out to me in a very reasonable way. And then I went and talked to Grant about it. Hey, hey, how did you like the game? I'm so glad you finally played it and finished. And he went off on this tirade about how awful the last fight was. And it was just bizarre that because of some relatively inconsequential choice about what his character would do he had made uh, you know that last fight was totally frustrating for him and this kind of gets back to, to expectations of the players like Bioshock when I played through that game I focused all of my energy into making my pistol as badass as I possibly could because I wanted to play a stealthy character so I was a wrench and pistol kind of guy and then about halfway through the game they simply stopped giving you pistol ammo I had just seriously. Oh my god. I mean, you cannot buy it, you cannot find it, it was unavailable to you. And, um, yeah, that was about the same feeling that I had, that Grant had. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, I have no way to identify or to confirm the veracity of what you just said. (laughs) I think Bioshock is a good game that was wildly overrated in a number of different ways. So we could talk about that some other time. I was oh, actually, God. I was no, really here's amazed my by the last second. Like everybody, every gamer on the planet is embarrassed to know me because of my story about Bioshock. I, I installed it. I started to play it. Uh, there's oh, that God. opening <laughs> sequence when you go down in like the bathosphere uh, and yeah. then it gets fucked up. And then there's that like little impish demon bladed, Claw thing outside. Right. And damn it. (laughs) I went through the first little sequence and then I went, Oh, really? It's another one of these horror shooters where like shit jumps out at me all the time. Eh, I don't feel like playing this. And I never played it again. I don't blame you because the first hour or two of that game is tonally completely different from the rest. That first you're, sequence you're talking is very about much the twist of the story. No, not at all. Okay. I'm saying like that first stretch where there's that splicer will like come back and like appear out of the ceiling and oh oh god where did he come from? There's almost none of that after the first sequence, which is funny. Yeah, I was like, that's... this is one of those jump out of you 
jump out of the closet at you shooters. And Grant was like, no, it's not like that at all. That's about <laughs> as far as I got into it, too. I got to the room. There's a room where you, you walk in the room, the doors close, and then the film comes up with the... Oh, what the hell's his name? The guy the guy that started the city. Yeah, uh, That's the is, first five minutes. No, not first five. I'm t- maybe in the first hour. I think it, I think it's maybe half hour into the game. In like, the bathosphere? No, 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 no. no. Y- you drop in the bathosphere, you run around, you get your first couple of powers, and then there's one particular room that you walk... You, you're like... You kill a bunch of splicers. You you see the first uh, big daddy and yeah. uh, little sister. You see the little sister uh, like kill the first guy, and then there's this room you walk into, and the doors close on you, and a film pops up with the guy telling you he's basically berating you for invading his home and telling you that you're you know you're gonna you're going to pay for your transgressions and then walls open and people start coming at you. That's as far as I got. And, and I just lost all interest and I, and everyone keeps telling me how awesome that game is. And I need to go further into it to get the, the, the actual feel of it. But up until that point, it was like uh setup after setup after setup and jump scare yeah. after jump scare after jump scare. Yeah. And I was just and like, developers, I mean, just, take notice if your game is something Make it that only times ten for the first hour, mm-hmm. so that I realize that's what the hell your game is. Well, I feel like a lot of games lately are falling into the trap of designing a demo of their first, however much content, and then wanting that to sell the game, even if it's not really representative of what the game's all about. And I think Brutal Legend is guilty of that, even though yeah. they didn't do that. I mean, the first I fucking love that God of War style whatever, with the humor of Tim Schafer and an axe. That sounds great. And then I go into this volcano thing or the mines or whatever it is, and it's like, have your guys defend this outpost. And I, I could not care less about doing that shit. And if they, I mean, a lot has been said, a lot of ink has been spilled about how, not deceitful, but at least, you know, misleading the marketing and, you know, general PR materials have been for that game. And That's what I love about Uncharted 2. <laughs> is that you can't really mislead people with that game. Yeah, you know what you that know? thing is. You know what you're getting and it is it to bring it to, to bring it all full circle to the conversation at the beginning about focus. That game is very focused on doing doing one thing very well. Like it's a it's an action platformer with a cover shooting element and amazing cinematic sequences and, cinem- and cinematic gameplay sequences and a uh, the feel of an adventure movie. But that's the thing. That Uncharted and, 2, the thing that Uncharted 2 does really well is those huge action set pieces. Sure. And, and the thing that it did, does not do well, and to its credit, it does it a lot better than the first game, but not still not there very well, is sustained firefights. And having to fight waves and waves of guys is not what that game does very well. And yet, towards the end of the game, uh, previous guest of the podcast, Drew Stoltman, I know, gave up on that game very, very late in, like, chapter 22 or something because really? he couldn't take those firefights. And I almost did the same thing. They were just driving because me crazy. Because for me, they didn't feel like the the first game did that to- way worse. Yes, and the shooting like, was horrible in the first um, game. But I don't. I wouldn't say horrible, but the first game, I think, was very much a walk into an area, kill everything that continues to come at you, Spend a little bit of time platforming in t- until you get to the next big area. Kill everything that starts coming at you. Yeah. And I thought they did a much better job of 
making the firefights in Uncharted 2 seem like they were more... A, they were more... They were integrated better into the gameplay uh, and into the storyline, and they didn't. It didn't feel like wave battles to me. It didn't. It, it didn't feel as much like I was walking into an area and then trying to kill the waves and waves of enemies that were coming at me. It felt, for the most part, even toward the end, like I was, I was walking into an area and what I saw in that area was what I needed to overcome. And then when I overcame it, I was allowed to move on and, and do something cool. I agree with you for, like, the first 20 chapters. But after a certain point, I, I really felt like the game was was being really gamey to me and saying, like, here's right. your room. We're going to send waves of guys at you, and now you're done. and move on. Just like the first game, which I didn't like nearly as much. Well, I liked it a lot. I'll, but... tell you, I'll tell you the part that felt gamey to me was the part where you finally, I mean, uh, again, I, I hope hopefully I'm not spoiling something for anyone, but... Well, I'll cut... I'll cut it out if you are. Okay, by the time you get spoiled, by the time you get to Shambhala, yeah. and there are the mutant altered guardsmen people, <laughs> and the moment for me that I realized that um, if I pick up a crossbow, I can one shot kill any of them. Yeah, that was gamey to me because the there, there was no there was no decent explanation for yeah. why those crossbows should have been that overpowered. Yes. Um, especially considering that they made it so that they, they didn't explain any kind of poison or any kind of oh, mystical no. ability. They didn't explain why, you know, they just made these things really ultra powerful, but then they gave the player an out if they got frustrated with trying to shoot things in the head too many times. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about that is you say they didn't give you any justification like some crazy poison and yet I think we would all be sitting here going ah oh, that was so stupid how they were like oh these these crossbows were poison and that's why they were my original that's point true. was that I'd rather just not have them there right I would rather if, if a crossbow is in the game if you know I can understand having the crossbows in the game as as weapons of those characters but to make them specifically overpowered toward those characters just broke it broke my suspension of disbelief. So at if, the moment. if it had been something else, like like I, don't, I haven't played the game and I don't know the story of it, but assuming that there are mutants, uh, we can also assume that things have been developed which kill mutants. If they had just couched it in like some special gun that was better at killing mutants. Would that have been okay? No. Or was it? Or no, was not, the really. Gameplay of, not really. I can suddenly one shot kill something that's really quite difficult. Because here is that the problem. I think I think that they they give you a, a very wide range of weaponry in that game, right? There's there is there's something like sixty different weapons that you can eventually pick up and, and shoot at somebody, maybe forty something like that. Um, and that was the only weapon in the entire arsenal that had any kind of weird mutant killing ability and it was it didn't it just plain didn't fit and it wasn't right like i i can understand like if i'm shooting at this motherfucker and i shoot him a billion times with a nine millimeter and that he just doesn't go down because that's his shtick well if i pull out an rpg and i fire a missile at him he should go down or at least should take a lot fewer shots and that didn't seem to be the case right yeah. they just didn't and they just it, it was it, as Grant said, seemed very gamey, seemed very, like, it, it was just this, like, it was an excuse. It was a, 
it felt like at some point during the gameplay, one of the uh, one of the testers went, "It's really hard to kill these guys. Maybe we should. Uh, we need to do something about killing these guys." And the developers were like, Meh, "Or a focus group or something." Maybe a focus group said that, and then they're like, oh, "I'm sure they did because they're hey, really let's hungry. let's make the weapons that they carry uh, dangerous to them." Like, why? Why? Why would that exist? Because these guys are meant to protect Shambhala from humankind. Why would they need a weapon that is specifically dangerous to themselves? You know what I mean? It, it just yeah. nothing about it fit right or sat well with me. Um, but it, but it's not really the gameplay. Like if they had introduced via the story that someone on your side or 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 whatever had introduced a weapon into your hands, which was specifically to counteract how fucking tough these bitches are, that would have been okay. It, it would have been better. better. It wouldn't have fit with the with the rest of the fiction. The story right. Uncharted makes a very big deal of making sure that at all times you are reminded that this stuff is plausible. And yeah. I mean, all right, well, well, how about, how about as a writer, I challenge you, Grant, to come up with some circumstance where it makes sense. What okay. I'm trying to say is it's not a pure gameplay objection. It's it's really about immersion and adherence to the environment. To some to some degree, for me, that's, that's true. It sounds like um, a specific conceptual thing, if this is a... Yeah. Uh, um, set, uh, section 9 situation where the alien weaponry was very good at killing aliens. District 9. District 9, yes, District 9. yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be okay if um, these crossbows were very specifically made to kill each other? Maybe. Uh, my, my problem with it is twofold. Uh, I, I don't want to harp on it too long, uh, but my, my problem with it is, is definitely partially... Uh, Part, being part of the fiction that, you know, it just didn't seem to make sense. And partially that um, they introduce these, you know, there's a, there's a point, by the time you get to that point in the game, you are pretty adept at killing humans. You are pretty adept at headshotting people. They, um, you know, they, they give you a, a pretty wide range of humans that you have to shoot at, but eventually you learn how to shoot at them all. So I think this was the point at which they had to introduce a new enemy and they were trying to make it tougher than the enemies that you dealt with before. But then instead of just making it tougher for you and giving you that challenge at the end of the game, they literally, they, they give you the challenge and then immediately give you an out where you can just be like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm just going to eat. I'm just going to take the easy way out. And I, it, you know, they they turn okay. one they turn the one shot kill treat cheat on. Getting and, back to uh, the the whole what feels like a good strategy is actually an exploit and the the balance between that. And as a gamer, I mean, honestly, most of the time if a game says, Hey, here, take this thing, it's much more effective, you know, that's what you're gonna do. You're not going to opt in to greater challenge. <laughs> especially, well, especially yeah. and it's not game. really because right. you don't want challenge. It's because games are always providing you with options that make you feel clever if you get them right. So it if a game a- says, hey, look, this thing is super effective, you're going to do it because right. you feel like you're playing the game correctly. Man, I suddenly had Pokemon flashbacks. Right. Yeah, it's, it's super not effective. Even, <laughs> it's not even correctly as much as it's it like... like I, to, to kind of expand on that point, like there were points at the end of that game where I, you know, I had found 
weaponry that I liked and that I knew that I could use effectively in specific situations. And regardless of the weapon or how much ammo I had in it or how much, you know, how much I had been protecting the ammo that I had in it, uh, as soon as one of those guys would appear, I would run around, like, looking for one of those crossbows. I would drop whatever the hell I had, pick up the crossbow, one-shot kill it, one shot kill every other enemy on the on the screen. And admittedly, they didn't give you much ammo for these crossbows, so you didn't really get. You maybe got three shots. You kill three enemies, and then you and then you run back and you pick up your your rifle or your RPG or whatever it is. And it was just like you know it 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 ended up not being a challenge to kill these guys because the only challenge was uh, remembering the crossbow that I happened to trudge across while entering the level at some point. Well, I think the solution for this is really simple, and I think we should move on yeah, uh, from Uncharted 2. But remove the crossbow, or if they make them either not drop the crossbow, make the crossbow do less damage when you pick it up, and reintroduce the environment as something that can damage these guys, which they had just done exactly. less than an hour yeah, previous. It, it yep. is, here's this explosive stuff that you can shoot, and then they kind of forget about it immediately. Mm-hmm. If, they, if you, Oh, if, yeah. That and then they bring it back. Fly. Well, don't, uh, don't give away too much. But. Sure. Yes, I have not played it yet, and I will have to. Well, no, I, okay. I, but but I can immediately see what you're saying. There's a big difference between drop the crap that you have been using and pick up something new to kill these guys with. Uh, between that and use the equipment that you already have to shoot at some environmental object, which is incredibly lethal to these things. Right. Yes, and I and. Again, I don't want to give away too much for the end, so we'll, we'll, we're going to stop talking about it now. It's uh, actually something about Dead Space that I love is is uh, the their setup of enemies, like their their combination of enemies, really allows you to, to use the environment and use the characters, the enemies themselves, as uh, these environmental hazards that you can use to your advantage, like the yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. guy with the giant hand that explodes and kills everybody, and you can kind of run around with your uh, stasis ability in the middle of the room. Uh, and herd these people into the middle of the room and then detonate everyone because of those those guys. And that's mm-hmm. a really fun gameplay in that. Uh, well, we're going to have to talk about Dead Space next time because um, it's we're two hours in and we got to almost nothing on the, uh, <laughs> on the agenda. That oh, we're not allowed to say that. Um, see? So, but yeah, t- I think anything over two hours and we're starting to be unreasonable with expecting people to actually listen to this. So, uh, uh, somebody in the room... a two-part podcast? Come on. It's true. I'm, that's a, that's an yeah, instant that, extra that week of content. Look, Come part, on. part of the appeal of doing this weekly is that I don't have to edit it. Which, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, so, last week I asked people what their game of the year was so far. I have provided an answer for that. Joe didn't really have one, and so I said that his choice was Uncharted 2. Um, <laughs> spoilers for those who haven't listened to the last episode. Um, so, Jason, what is your game of the year? <sighs> game of the year. Uh, I played too many games to really give a great answer. But so did I, but I, I did. I can honestly say that Demon's Souls has caught my attention. <sighs> In, in a way that oh. no other game this, this year has caught my attention, and I apologize. It's Should I exclaim in a weird way, even though I know virtual, virtually nothing about the game? We've got yeah, two. No, no, we just got a third. Going into, oh. going into the explanation of, of why I like that game so much is probably you know unreasonable right now. But it would, you know. That's, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm surprised, because I know that it has 
it draw it, it calls to me, and I want to play it. I'm not going to buy it because I don't <laughs> need to be kicked in the crotch, at least until after all the games that I really want to play this holiday season are out. But um, I can totally understand why someone would say that. So I still haven't beat Mega Man Nine, so I've got plenty of opportunity to get kicked in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason says Demon Souls. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I haven't had a chance to finish the end of the year and play Borderlands or Modern Warfare. I would be very surprised or... if anybody's game of the year was Borderlands. <laughs> I know it was a good game, but yeah, we can talk about that some other next time you're on, Jason. We'll talk right. about Borderlands. <laughs> uh, Luke, what about you? Um, so, so my experience is a little incomplete. If I'm going to shoot from the hip, I'm going to say Uncharted 2. Uh, but a cu- about a week ago, um, I'm a huge action platformer nut. Like, yeah. Jack and Daxter, the Ratchet and Clank series is probably one of my favorite series in video game history. Um, Sly Cooper, adventure games, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and... I had played through the first half of Ratchet and Clank Future Tools of Destruction and hadn't touched it almost since it came out because other games had come up where I'd ran out of time. So last week I played through about the last two-thirds of Ratchet and Clank Tools of Destruction, the entirety of Quest for Booty, and I had started on... I have started... I'm about four hours into uh, A Crack in Time, Ratchet and Clank Future 2, A Crack in Time, and... Everything that either bored and or frustrated me about Ratchet and Clank Future One, um, in the first four hours of Crack in Time, I've realized are gone. And so uh, that that being said, I, I I'm even though I'm only four hours into it, I'm, I'm going to say Ratchet and Clank Future Two because uh, it is the platform shooter perfected in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's so good. It's so polished. And um, a lot of people kind of talk about how it's, you know, it's just the same thing all over again, but that's because, you know, it's the, they've made seven, eight Ratchet and Clank games, sure. But now, like, e- even having played all of them up until this point, I started playing Ratchet and Clank Feature 2, and it felt fun and fresh to me. And that's enough to make me uh, call it like probably one of my favorite games of all time. Also, one of the so. better opening ten minutes of gameplay I've played in a long time. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. Well, uh, so one for Demon Souls, one for Uncharted Two because you said that first, and I count Uncharted Two. Uh, it's oh. like Jeopardy. Oh, and, uh, just I see how it is. Um, so that's interesting. I, I I have almost no experience with the Jack and Daxters and Ratchet and Clanks and the Sly Coopers and Conquerors Quest and. They all kind of ran together. Banjo Kazooie, you know. They all kind of ran together to me. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying I'm justified. I'm saying that's in my head. They're just all one big jumble, and so I. You're just an anti. So wait a minute. Is Super Mario 64 (laughs) and Vex in the same like category for you? Do you mean Gex? No, I mean Vex. I don't know even know what that is. Yeah, don't don't even bother. Okay, so Vex is loose game of the year, and uh, (laughs) so um, yeah, I think that we're gonna call it a night here. Uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Next time we have Luke and or Jason on, we can talk about the rest of the stuff that we are going to get into. Um, but for now, uh, Joe, would you like to say anything before I sign off? No, I'm content. <laughs> All right. Well, for Joe Caruso, for – do you want me to say your last names? Go ahead. I already for, said it at the beginning anyway. Oh, did so. you? Okay. Well, they already said it, so screw them. Uh, this has been Episode 3 of the 2 vs. 2 podcast. 
Grant, Jason, Luke, Joe saying thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye.